Thank you so much for being on the show today, Rabbi Fixler. It's awesome meeting you. I'm so thrilled to be here, Sarah. This is great. This is so cool. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what a, a golem is and what's its significance to Jewish people? Sure, absolutely. So uh, a golem is a, a Jewish mythological creature. Um, it is a creature made um, uh, by a human being out of some substance, usually clay, that through an understanding of the mystical pro properties of the universe and the, the powers by which God created life and brought uh, and brought the universe into being, a, a Jewish uh, teacher or rabbi could animate it, bring it to life. Um, in order to serve some uh, ritual or Jewish function. Sometimes golems in Jewish stories um, are uh, helpers in a synagogue, and sometimes, often in golem stories, they are protectors of a Jewish community that might be under threat of anti-Semitism. And um, the, uh, the golem is uh, not alive in the sense that you and I are alive. It, for instance, in most versions of golem stories, can't speak. Um, and that is a, the speaking is a sort of symbol in Judaism of, of our, our creative capacity for thought. And the golem exists only for that purpose. And when the purpose is no longer needed, the golem can be returned back into clay. Um, and it is, uh, how do I want to say that? Uh, it is, uh, there are lots of different theories about how you bring a golem to life. If I knew, I, I would have done it. And if I've done it, I can't tell you. Um, but there are lots of theories about how you bring a golem to life. One of them is that you write on its forehead the Hebrew word emet, aleph, mem, and tav, which is the Hebrew word for truth. Um, and to bring, turn your golem back into mud, you erase the aleph, which create, leaves just the word death. Um, and that returns the golem to mud. But other people say you put a scroll under its tongue with instructions or with a secret uh, holy name of God, or you walk around it in a certain pattern while muttering certain incantations. There are all sorts of theories about how you bring a golem to life. And golem stories have been told throughout Jewish history. Um, golem, uh, the word golem only appears once in the uh, Hebrew Bible in the book of Psalms, where it doesn't refer um, specifically to this creature. It refers to an un formed mass. Um, and, but that word then gets interpreted by later generations and uh, to, to be this creature. So already by the time of the Talmud in the third to fifth century of the Common Era, there are a couple of different references to a creature that could be created of earth and then brought to life. Um, and there's also a, a Jewish understanding that, uh, that Adam in the, in the period before God breathed life into his nostrils um, was himself a golem, was a creature made of earth. But God has this capacity to bestow life that human beings don't have. And so God makes Adam into a person and we make golems into um, automatons. So could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to create the Golem Museum and how people can support your work? Uh, absolutely. So it's funny because you and I sort of found each other online through this uh, Instagram I account I have, um, the Golem Museum, um, Golem underscore museum on Instagram. Um, and uh, and this is a relatively new project of mine. Um, I've been collecting golems for years, um, basically as long as I can remember when somewhere time around high school, I acquired my first little golem and I got obsessed 
um, with the idea of the golem and the multifunctionality of the golem, that it can be a sort of symbol of all these different things. And I started to collect. I have golem um, figurines and statues and paintings and artwork. And I have uh, like uh, about a hundred different books that have golems in them or reference golems. And um, and I have this collection. And at some point in, uh, in the last couple of years of rabbinical school, where I lived in New York, I started to call our apartment the South Brooklyn Golem Museum. And my wife did not think that that was funny. Um, and, um, and but that was that was sort of how I referred to this ever growing collection. And then I had this epiphany this past December, like, oh, the Golem Museum needs an Instagram account. So I set up this Instagram account and I started taking pictures of some of the items in the Golem Museum and posting them as if we were a real museum. I mean, I get we're like I believe in the newsies philosophy of we're a museum just by saying so. Um, but I, you know, I'm trying to have these like I catalog numbers and um, I pretend that there are debates between the uh, the curators and the interns and management and it's all me. Um, and uh, and it's just sort of a fun bit that I'm doing and I I'm enjoying getting to share um, my golems and and excuse all of this you know time and money that I've spent on golems through the years by. Uh, by sharing them with the world. And I've made new golem friends like with you. Um, and people have started sending me their artwork. If you have golem related art, please send me pictures of it and I'll post it. Um, but also there's something that I really love about having a fake museum about the golem because um, fake things have actually always been a part of golem lore. Um, the, the most famous uh, an influential book about the golem was written in 1909 by this guy named Udal Rosenberg. He was writing in Poland um, and he eventually moved to Canada. He writes this book um, called The Wondrous Deeds of the Maharal of Prague. The Maharal is this actual historical figure named Judah Lowe, whose name is combined into an acronym of Maharal. Um, and uh, Judah Lowe lived in Prague in the 16th century. He was the chief rabbi of Prague, real historical guy. And uh, uh, and Udal Rosenberg tells this series of stories about this golem that the Maharal creates in order to protect his community um, from anti-Semitic attacks, particularly related to blood libel, the anti-Semitic myth that um, that Jews use blood to make matzah, which is not true, um, and which has been used throughout the centuries for as an excuse for pogroms against the Jews. So Udal Rosenberg writes this book, and at the beginning of this book, he claims that he has found a manuscript. Of, um, of this book in the great library of Metz and that it was written by Udal Lowe's son-in-law and he is gonna do a translation of this manuscript. And then on the next page of the book is a bill of sale saying that he has purchased this manuscript from the great library of Metz and um, and so you have the receipt in the book. The problem is there, th that never happened. There is no manuscript. There's not even a great library of Metz. Udal Rosenberg made all of that up. And um, and there are a lot of theories about why he did it. I subscribe to the theory that he was actually a congregational rabbi and his congregants didn't like him writing fiction. And so as a sort of wink and a nod, he likes it. It's not fiction. I found a manuscript. It's a translation. But it's a it's a bit that he is doing. And unfortunately, fortunately, because I love mythology, um, people believed him. And people, someone else wrote another book a couple of years later saying he had a better version of the manuscript that never existed. 
And so these like fake things that that claim that they are based in real life history um, uh, are uh, are deep part of sort of golem lore. That those stories that Udo Rosenberg writes um, become the basis for most golem stories that get told today. And I've read in like sort of articles and and uh, in in other books like uh, people referring to the manuscript as if it really existed. And so the idea of a fake museum about this real idea of the golem, although like we could talk about whether a golem has ever actually been made. Um, but it like, and it's a real collection, but the museum like is a bit like that just feels very in keeping with the history of golem lore. And then my hope is that someday my goal for the museum is that that will do a real print uh, museum catalog so that there can be a real catalog for a fake museum about a real collection about a fake creature. That's that's what I'm working towards. And there will be a merch store very soon. We're working on that too. That's so awesome. There's a lot of really cool artwork out there. Like, um, you know, that one Instagram account that does the little plush golems. That's like Hello Kitty. It's so cute. And there's so many different little friends. They're like adorable. Um, yes, absolutely. The other reason that I really wanted to do this is that golems are kind of having a moment. Um, like there are like a lot of Etsy and internet people who are making golem related artwork. Um, but there is also, um, there, there like every year, every other year, some major work of American fiction comes out that has a golem in it. Um, and you know, we, for the last couple of decades, there have been golem books to sort of one of the most well-known is the Michael Shabin's book, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Um, but Helene Wecker just had a, a sequel to a Golem book that she wrote a couple of years ago, The Golem and the Ginny. A sequel came out this year. Um, I just was reading today about um, a new graphic novel by a pretty well-known comics artist called The Golem of Venice Beach, which is coming out soon. So like there, the, for, for reasons that I'm happy to tell you my theories on, um, that like th there are a lot of golem related content being made and i wanted to be a part of the the great internet golem discourse and so you mentioned uh, the beautiful sort of plush golems that are made by um uh, a uh, etsy artist who calls herself devotage sacred arts um and i have two of those in the in the collection um including one that looks like ruth bader ginsburg it's ruth bader gins golem and um it was a it was a commission and um uh and also, like, um, there is a uh, there is a, a somewhat well-known Jewish Twitter personality who also creates artwork whose name, if I, I can say, um, you, there's a Jewish philosopher, Maimonides, and her uh, Twitter handle is Maimonides Nuts. That that was that was her choice, um, and 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 now all of us get to struggle with saying that publicly. But she's done some golem related artwork too, and and we've become golem friends. So um, I am I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Like suddenly the world is obsessed with golems, and and one of the interesting things is also watching non Jewish creators wrestle with or refuse to wrestle with like what is their part in making Jewish or not Jewish golem related art someone commented on my post today about that uh, really interesting question so this is I um so I'm not Jewish myself but I think those golem are really cute would it be like wrong if I bought a bunch and kept them over my room or should I just like give them as gifts to the friends I have that are Jewish um yeah, so I mean, like, this is a the, the, this is a question 
that I really do wrestle with a bit in terms of the, the appropriation piece of this. So in addition to being this creature that is deeply rooted in, in sort of Jewish mysticism and, um, and a, a long history of Jewish thought, um, golems have also crossed over into that um, great realm of like generic creatures um, you know, I, I always say, like, if you do a TV show where you have, like, the creature of the week, like, you know, if you're making a Batman show or the real adventures of Johnny Quest or whatever, eventually you're going to have a golem because, like, that you get there. And, like, there's a golem in Minecraft that's, I guess, made of stone, and there's a golem in Pokemon. And most of those golems don't have any sort of identifiable Jewish character. My policy for the museum is that I want to have uh, golems that have at least some connection to the Jewish the Jewish part of the golem story but there's a lot of stuff out there that that doesn't and I I think that in some ways um golem has sort of crossed over into the um the sort of public domain of of creature world um uh, and and I like I'm not terribly interested in fighting that fight um like you know if you're going to have a golem in your in your minecraft like okay um but I also think that there is a, a deep and lasting Jewish connection to this creature, and I like artwork that explores that. And for people who are going to make art that's really invested in what a golem is and was in the Jewish tradition, like I think that they need to wrestle with what that means. Golems are often symbols of protection um, for Jewish communities that have historically been under threat from various forces. And uh, golems are really symbols of power and powerlessness and the, the way that someone imagines what it would be like to have the kind of power that their enemies imagine they have, but that they don't actually have. And so, you know, and appropriative forces are one of the things in the modern world that, that threaten minority communities. And um, and so the fact that the golem as an image is subject to cultural appropriation is an interesting thing that we need to make a golem to protect us from. And so I like whether you can own a golem that has like, you know, a Jewish character to it, I, you know, I think fits in the same category of you owning a whole host of, of religious items that have um, a, a deep sense of connection to the, the tradition that they're from. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly I think golems make great gifts for your Jewish friends. Uh, but I think it's really a matter of, are you doing that in an appropriative way? Or are you doing that in a way that acknowledges um, and honors the sort of rich tradition in which these ob objects come from? Thank you for answering my question. Would you mind talking about some of the interfaith activism that you do? Sure. Um, so in addition to, uh, to my interest as, um, the, the lead curator slash intern slash manager of the Golem Museum, um, in my real professional life that isn't a fake museum, I, um, also, uh, I am a rabbi at a synagogue in Texas, in Houston, and I am a, uh, and I do a lot of interfaith work here in Houston. I am the president of the Houston Area Faith Leaders Coalition, which is an organization for interfaith progressive clergy to come together around issues of justice. Um, and I am also on the board nationally of an organization called the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, which is an interfaith pro-choice organization um, that is about lifting up the, the voices of people of faith um, on the issues of reproductive justice. And so uh, that's work that I've been called to do for a really long time. Um, I think that uh, as a, 
a person in a faith that is in the minority in America, um, I have this unique opportunity to shed different light on some of those issues. And also my experience has been that when people of faith are able to um, act together across lines of difference and are able to um, speak with the force and power of their uh, religious traditions, that we are able to um, bring new light and new hope to really complex problems in our world. And I uh, find that very rewarding. So could you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Coalition for uh, Reproductive Freedom? Yes. So the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice was founded in 1973. And it actually came out of an earlier organization, uh, which was called the Clergy Consultation Service, or the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion. And the Clergy Consultation Service was an underground railroad of mostly Christian and Jewish clergy that moved people across state lines to get the abortion services that they needed in the era before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal in parts of the country. Um, and uh, and Jewish and Christian and, and Muslim and, and people of all sorts of faiths came together to use the power of their prophetic traditions to, to meet this really important need, which was that people needed these services. In 1973, which is when Roe v. Wade happened, that organization transitioned into this um, advocacy organization that has existed ever since. I had the honor to work there. It was my first job out of college. I did youth organizing at RCRC. And um, now I'm back as a board member. And we really exist to um, bring this voice of faith. The, the majority of Americans believe believe that abortion should be accessible um, in, in at least some cases. Uh, and the majority of Americans of faith believe that abortion should be accessible. And for many of them, that is not in spite of their faith, but because of it. And I can say something about that in the Jewish tradition, which really informs where I, where I come from. Um, but it's very powerful to be um, with uh, people of faith countering the perception that has been created um, in the media that if you are a person of faith, you must come down on one particular anti-choice side of this issue, um, it, where the majority of, uh, of Americans are not reflected in that. So one of the things that it sometimes surprises people to learn is um, is that the Jewish tradition um, is pretty clear on the question of abortion, um, that uh, the, because the Torah, the Jewish Bible, does not talk explicitly about abortion, um, anybody who tells you that the Bible talks about abortion explicitly is misreading or misunderstanding um, the Bible, in my opinion, um, certainly if they're talking about the Hebrew Bible. Um, it does have a scene where uh, a woman has an accidental miscarriage, and um, the punishment for that miscarriage is different than if she is harmed in her body. And so Jewish law, based on that scene from Exodus, understands that a pregnancy is, um, is important and valuable, but that it has a differential value than the, than the life of the person carrying that pregnancy. And from this Jewish tradition, all the way back to the time of the Mishnah, so we're talking first to third century of the Common Era, has been pretty explicit that if a mother's life is threatened, that um, that Judaism permits and 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 maybe even requires an abortion. Um, and and fairly early Jewish texts are quite explicit um, about about this. Uh, Jewish texts describe a pregnancy as being a part of the mother's thigh. Um, and the Jewish and the Mishnah says if if a mother's life is threatened that the pregnancy should be torn from her womb limb from limb. 
which is a very graphic way to explain that. And I think it's graphic on purpose because they want you to know there's no equivocation here. There's no uncertainty. And so the question of um, when it might be permissible for a person to have an abortion, and also the question of when life begins, um, is a deeply religious question where the Jewish community comes down differently than some other faith traditions. Um, the Jewish tradition says that essentially that life does not fully begin until birth. And um, so laws that try and legislate um, people's access to these services to vital reproductive health care services, limit uh, a Jewish person's ability to access the care that they need and the care that they understand as being permissible in their faith tradition. And laws that try and legislate a definition of when life begins, which again is a religious question, um, are a real deep violation of the separation of church and state. And so, like I said, I live here in Texas, where um, we have what is uh, a six-week ban on abortion, what they, the people who wrote it called a fetal heartbeat bill, which says that when after the time at which you can detect some kind of thing that resembles what we might call a heartbeat, um, that, that then abortion is illegal after that point. Um, and that's based on a religious understanding of, of, of when life begins that my tradition doesn't share. And so even though the Supreme Court in 1973 found this to be an issue of the 14th Amendment and privacy, for me, it's really an issue of the First Amendment and freedom of religion. That's definitely a, a good point there. And it's also important to note that there are different ideas on when life starts. Because I remember um, there was a Jewish comedian, Alex Bornstein, was being interviewed about a controversial episode of uh, the program Family Guy that dealt with abortion. And she was talking about, uh, since she's Jewish, that she was taught life doesn't start until the baby takes. So it was never something that was uh, like a big point of controversy in her family. Yeah, absolutely. And and the the vast majority of American Jews support um, uh, reproductive choice or access to abortion services. Um, and and part of that comes from the the clarity in our faith tradition. And so like part of the reason that I am called to this work as a rabbi is that um, I think it's important for people to hear this perspective that differs from um, a particular uh, Christian perspective that is often portrayed in the media, once again, um, that, that tries to portray all people of faith or the correct people of faith as holding a certain set of views here. And part of the beauty of living in a... Um, diverse nation in a religiously diverse nation, as in, in addition to all the other diversities that make this country great, um, is that we, we have to work hard to make sure that everyone's faith tradition can be protected. And that's why the protections of the First Amendment are, are so important. So if somebody wanted to support the, um, the work that the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice does, how can they do so? That's a great question. So someone who wants to learn more about RCRC or um, wants to get involved should absolutely go to rcrc.org. That's for the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. And there you can read up on um, how all sorts of different faith traditions approach the question of reproductive choice and reproductive justice. Um, you can learn more about our work. We have an amazing uh, religious resource center for people who want to learn more um, that has up to like whole courses that one can take on compassionate care if one is a healthcare provider or a clergy person of various faiths um, or faith leader of various faiths. Um, so there's amazing resources at rcrc.org. And of course, it's also a place where you can make a donation. And, you know, you and I are having this conversation in, in early June um, at a time when it seems like all, all 
indications are that a decision is going to come down from the Supreme Court shortly uh, that is going to drastically change uh, people's access to vital health care services in this country by overturning or significantly limiting Roe v. Wade. The all indications are that's what's going to happen. And so I think it's going to be a really important moment um, for all people, uh, and especially people of faith, um, to raise their voices and to to speak out for the values that are not being represented by these decisions, and also to start to think about what are we going to do, like those rabbis and priests and ministers who started the clergy consultation service in the era before Roe, what are we going to do um, to to help people on the ground who are not going to be able to access the services they need. That's a good point. Did you have anything else you'd like to talk about on the show today while you're here? Um, well, I love I love that your podcast is called Come Pray With Me um, because yeah. I, um, I, you know, I'm a rabbi who cares a lot about prayer. Um, and rabbis care a lot about a lot of things and all rabbis definitely care about prayer, but it is a big part of my rabbinate and what I do. I had, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in a praying family. I grew up in a Shabbat dinner family. We had Shabbat dinner with my grandparents every week, but the only times we went to services are like when the rabbi came over and joined us for Shabbat dinner and then we felt bad. So we went to services, but like, so I grew up, you know, uh, sort of unsure what it meant to pray. Um, we went to uh, synagogue, it, it, lots of holidays, and I was certainly uh, felt a part of my synagogue community, but but services were not where I felt most comfortable. And I had a um, a real uh, crisis about that when I got to rabbinical school, because it felt like I was supposed to already know how to pray, and I had no idea what it was that I was supposed to be doing. And I would sit at services when I was in, in prayer services during school, and I would um, just sort of to wonder uncomfortably what it was I was supposed to be doing. And when I was leading services, which was even worse, I would be sort of praying and looking out at this community of people, like at the places where I interned while I was in rabbinical school, going like, why, why are you here? With, with like real curiosity, right? Like, like, um, like lots of Jews are, don't make the decision to be here. So why did you make the decision to be here and what are you getting out of it? And I, I really struggle with that. And um, and it came to a head um, where the crisis got um, absolutely existential um, the week that the presidential election of 2016 happened. I was in my last year of rabbinical school um, and Donald Trump was elected and that was um, – something I can say as a human and a rabbi, but not in my professional capacity, um, was deeply upsetting to me um, as someone who stood for, uh, the, stood against a lot of my religious and American values. And I was standing in services on that Friday night in a room full of people, many of whom um, who uh, had not voted for, for Donald Trump. And, um, and I, couldn't figure out the answer to the question, like, why are you here? I was like, you could be out in the resistance, you could be knitting pussy hats, you could be making signs, you could be like, why are you here? And I and I had a few months left of rabbinical school, and I had I had to come up with an answer to that question, because um, it was a real problem for a guy who was about to be an ordained rabbi. And I, I developed in the weeks after that a theory. Um, and I wanted to, because uh, I'm on the Come Pray With Me podcast, I wanted to share with you my theory of prayer. And my theory of prayer goes like this. It's really hard to be a human being in the world. It is really hard, especially in 2022, to be a human being in the world. And one of the reasons that it is hard to be a human being in the world is that 
our brains are not designed for this. Our tiny monkey brains that were evolved to help us get food and make sure our genes survived when we were just coming down from trees are not well set up for a world where I have to care about people who live five minutes away from me and on the other side of my country and on the other side of my world. And we live in a globalized society when like scientists tell us that our brains are really meant to hold like 50 relationships. And we have to hold in our, uh, in our hearts um, a world that is broken, that is complex, that is um, that is that asks a lot of us, and we're we're like literally not evolved to do that. And I think that the power of prayer, certainly in my community, but I wonder if this is true in other faith traditions as well, is that prayer is an amazing curriculum to teach us the skills we need to be the people we need to be in the world. And, you know, I come from a liturgical tradition, so we have the set prayers that we offer most, you know, most times that we pray, in addition to the individual prayers of our hearts. And those set prayers um, give us a, a possible world to live in for a moment that we might not agree with every word in those prayers, but living in that world stretches our heart in a particular way that allows us to be the kind of people we need to be in the world. So I'll give you an example. So um, we say every night in our services a prayer called the Ma'ariv Aravim, which is a prayer about God um, creating the universe, creating the world. God, the image in, in the uh, Ma'ariv Aravim is that God rolls light away from darkness and darkness away from light every day. It's a beautiful image, beautiful metaphor. I don't know that I like that. I, that's not how I scientifically know that the like the earth revolves around the sun. And that's I know how light and dark works. For a minute, when I say Ma'ariv Aravim, I am living in this reality of the um, of, of a created universe. And whether or not I believe that to be scientifically true, I know it to be spiritually true. And if I live in a universe that is created by God, where God is responsible for rolling light and darkness like kneading of dough, what is it that I am called to do and be in response to that truth? How am I called to protect creation? How am I called to lift up creation and be a steward of it in a different way? And when I live in that truth of being in a created world, even for the two minutes that I'm saying Ma'arivaravim, it stretches my heart to hold more of the world in it. And when I pray for peace and I imagine what divine peace looks like, and I pray that God send that divine peace to the whole world, right, for a moment I live in the possibility of a world that could resemble something we might call heaven. And I live in the possibility that I am somehow an agent in, in refracting and reflecting the divine light of that peace into the world. And that asks me to be who I need to be in the world. And when I'm praying, I'm aware of the people next to me. Jewish tradition says you're supposed to pray just loud enough that you can hear yourself, but not so loud that it bothers the person next to you, which is an impossible balancing act and is exactly what we need to do in the world. We need to take up just enough space so that we are taking up our own space so that we can be heard, but not so much space that it starts to step on other people's space. And so even just the act of praying in community is already teaching me the spiritual skills to be the kind of person I need to be in the world. 
And so my, my solution to the problem that I created, the problem of why are you here, is that I think there are things we need to learn. I think Jewish prayer for, for me and my community is, is one of the best curricula ever written to teach us those things. And, I, um, and I'm constantly bowled over by um, the, the spiritual lessons about how to be a human um, that I am learning from the words of prayer and the act of prayer and the community of prayer um, that, that help sustain me in the, the day-to-day grind of living in this, this difficult existence. There's a rabbi uh, who says, um, in a place where there are no humans, one has to strive to be human. And I think that like part of the work that we are all here to do is to strive to be human. Do you have any prayers you'd like to share while you're here? Oh, see, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Um, I, yeah, there's, here's something I've been thinking about. And, um, you know, when we're talking, I don't know when this will air, but when we're talking, it's Pride Month. And I've been thinking a lot about... um, there is this Jewish concept I imagine has come up on this podcast before called tikkun olam, repair of the world. And tikkun olam, actually, we use it in this general sense of like doing good deeds, but it means something very specific in the Jewish tradition. It comes from this mystical idea that um, before the universe, everything was God's light. And God's light was so bright and so perfect that it shattered into billions of pieces and that God tried to take that light in the shards of those light and God hid it in all the different parts of creation. And um, our job is to be seekers of light. That the, what, this, what this image reminds us of is that the world is sort of born in brokenness. The world is incomplete but that we are part of the process of completing the work of creation by seeking out that light that lives in all different hidden places, but especially inside people, and bringing that light together. And each of us has some different reflection of that divine light. We have in us um, some light that is green and blue and purple and brown. And when we bring those lights together, we are making this beautiful, gorgeous rainbow that affirms the great diversity of all of the divine lights that we bring to this world in our different faith traditions, in our different expressions of gender, in our different expressions of sexuality, in our different expressions of culture and language and all of those things. When we bring those together, we create this beautiful spectrum that in some way captures the the bright whiteness um, of that divine light that existed before the shattering. And so my prayer is always that we can be prisms of light. My prayer is that we can know that there is divine light in us, that we can see it, and revel in it, but know that the purpose of being carriers of divine light isn't to keep it inside of us, it's to shine it out on the world. And that the great power of divine light comes when we bring our light and line it up with other people's light and shine it in a direction that shines towards a better possibility, towards justice and wholeness and peace. And my prayer for all of us is that we um, that we know our light, that we find others with light, and that we shine that light towards a better world. Thank you. That that's a wonderful idea. Do you have anything else you'd like to share while you're here? Um, no, I, I, I like. I'm really. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm so grateful to you for for having me on. And I hope people will follow Golem underscore Museum on Instagram if you want for all your Golem related content. Um, and I hope that people will share with me if they have uh, Golems that they've created that they think I don't know about. Um, and I want. I want to. 
hear that and see that. And I hope that people will check out the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, rcrc.org, um, and 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 support the work that they do if that if that feels meaningful to you. Um, because I think that that is that is one of the places where I um, um, am trying to to bring together shards of what feels like really broken light. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for being on the show today. Oh, it's been a blast. Thank you for having me. And we got to talk about such a fun diversity of things. So uh, this has been yeah, really fun. Absolutely.